Welcome to the Heart Soul Wisdom Podcast, a journey of self-discovery and transformation. Moira Sutton and her amazing guests share real-life stories, tools, and strategies to inspire and empower you to create and live your best life. Come along on the journey and finally blast through any fears, obstacles, and challenges that have held you back in the past so you can live your life with the joy, passion, and happiness that you desire. Now, here's your host, Create the Life You Love Empowerment Life Coach, Moira Sutton. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 25. Living in the Flow of Wakefulness, with our special guest, author and psychotherapist, Catherine Jansen Burkitt. For a long time, Catherine has been passionate for embodied wakefulness, wakefulness as a lived experience, rather than simply a conceptual one. It was not always like this for her, though. In her own personal journey, at the young age of 16, she was almost 200 pounds and suicidal. Catherine was far from feeling or living life expansively. Her journey of waking up began with a suicide attempt and then the long, hard passage between despair and hope. After healing from the inside out, she shares her powerful message, moving from the world within to the outer world. Now Catherine is thrilled to bring her amazing work forward in her book, River to Ocean, Living in the Flow, A Wakefulness. She presents nine aspects of wakefulness within a framework of the inner and outer world. She not only offers powerful ideas, but ways to integrate each with an inspiring story from the field. Using a holistic approach, Catherine takes her audiences on a spiritual life journey, one that transforms despair into hope and confusion into clarity towards the ultimate discovery of an awakened self. So without further ado, it is so much my pleasure to introduce you to Catherine. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. Uh, this is going to be cool. And thank you for your, I enjoyed your book immensely. It, it was mm. written so beautifully. It's something, it's almost like, I don't want, well, I'm going to say like a Bible, like having something that's just so powerful. Mm. And mm. I just, I, I have to share something on this end <laughs> that just happened up my window. Um, my office overlooks a beautiful willow tree, which I interact with nature and that. And this is going to be very powerful because my totems are the red-tailed hawk and the long-eared owl. Those are my totems in shamanism. And a, mm. hawk, a hawk just flew by my window twice, mm. just as we're starting this. So wow. that's expansiveness right there. So I, there think every, I think everyone should have your book. I think it's like a oh. Bible for life. It's just such a resource. And that that to me speaks to me when a hawk goes by twice with the beautiful expansiveness of, their, mm. of you know his or her wings. Mm. So there yeah. we go. <laughs> there we go. Let's fly. Yeah. So let's start at this. You know, this is a powerful story. You were only 16. You were almost 200 pounds and you attempted suicide. Please share that story and then your thoughts on depression and suicide. Well, thank you for starting there um, in that uh, it was really a response to trauma, what was happening, food addiction, the the darkness of uh, the depression I was contending with um, that ultimately was also about a deep fracture to my sense of self. Um, my beloved father, who now has passed, basically left um my sister and I, the remaining children in the family and my mom actually framing it as I can't kind of do this with, I can't do family life. So that was, that was kind of a, a personal thing, not just uh, this marriage is difficult. And so um, I didn't know it at the time, uh, but it began to really live inside of me as again, such a trauma to my sense of self and being enough, I wasn't enough to keep my father at home, that within a couple of years that had just really taken hold. So what was an eating disorder became eating addiction. Um, what was sadness just took me into very dark place. And in the suicide attempt, um, obviously it didn't work, which I thank the universe and the divine for. I literally in a hospital room kind of had a chat with God. And if 
uh, in my young self, if I can't even do this right, I have to figure something different out. So that really began the journey that is uh, what I offer in the book, which is the step-by-step healing and working with all of those things to rediscover who I really was, not only to heal and then to really live that transformed life. Now, did you come from a a family that was spiritual or religious, or did you just, you started on your own path learning this and doing this? You know, um, my mother was um, highly spiritual, so she, and she's quite eclectic. So she would dabble in Judaism. We were members of the Presbyterian Church. I went to a psychic at 14 years old. She often talked about the past lives that we have had, and and so you know, I am so in appreciation of that uh, now. And uh, because I just got, it just was uh, an exposure to so many different paths to uh, God and, and consciousness. And so I just kind of picked off up where she left off in a way uh, on my own journey. Yeah, that's wonderful. I know when I grew up, I, I was also brought up in the Presbyterian church and I, I questioned things there because we were taught in school, don't question your you know, elders, your teacher, your, mm-hmm. your, your the person at the church when, when you went to, yeah. you know, out when people had the church thing. But I had asked, you know, I, I didn't have an idea in my head where God, where did that start? I kept going back kind of in my mind. Did he pop into the universe? Like, you know, it was a yeah. and, I, yeah. and, then, and she couldn't answer it. She kind of ignored it and couldn't answer it. And then that's when I questioned her. I thought. Well, I'm not giving that outside anymore. I'm going to discover myself and went down, you know, my own spiritual path. Yes. Yes. Tell me, what does your definition of a awakened self mean to you? And how could you share that with our listeners? Well, um, I guess when I have had both the most intense moment, which was a moment where I attempted suicide, Mm -hmm. and one of my most transformed moments. Um, in those two in contrast, um, I, I take on just kind of to build on your last question, the idea that, uh, God is not out there somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, it is within and we are that, and that was very, very different than even though Presbyterian experience was not traumatic for me, it was, it was a completely different paradigm. I think that's what I'm hearing you say. Um, and so when I think about our true, self, that I am that self. I tried in my book to define it in ways that people would concretely understand, having maybe not had either of those experiences I, that I had had, either tremendous and deep despair and pain, or a kind of moment of awakening and um, an altered kind of like something happening in a, in a in a moment of time, I guess I would say. So being fully present, which would you know, imply being fully present in the moment. But I would add to that being fully present to what is, not just like, oh, I'm noticing I'm talking to Moira right now, but fully taking in all that's happening both internally and externally, being relaxed. And so for some of us that we didn't even know how anxious we are, if we are in a state of anxiety, there is a way we are not as present. And then I would lastly offer interconnected to um, everything around us in ways that again in, in a kind of western culture we don't always experience so relaxed fully present uh, to the moment and to all that is here not in distraction and interconnected um, to to life and others and other beings does that make sense definitely definitely i was just thinking very deeply as you're speaking there because Mm. right now you know with that we know with the covid and the pandemic you know and and then the things around politics racism all that you know kind of gucky stuff's coming up or if we do feel anxious or depressed or we don't know why it's even there is that those things you just said is that what you would say to somebody to like just sit down with it maybe observe it Exactly. You know, the being with rather than fixing is, again, kind of a a different paradigm for others to uh, work with. But, you know, I'm a psychotherapist. So sometimes being with some of the really hard stuff, that's that's overwhelming to do alone. So 
uh, a key part of my work. And I think just what we're understanding, just even with the impact of COVID, is um, how powerful a loneliness can be. And undoing mm-hmm. aloneness is huge. So it's um, either... So being with what is, and that's a deeper practice of mindfulness than some people think. Some people think mindfulness is just a blissful experience. And you may have read this in my book. It is if blissful things are happening. But if I've been ignoring what's been going on in my life or inside of me or both, I'm actually, some stuff's going to roll off the shelf and it's going to be uncomfortable. It might be even painful. So it's a willingness to be with what is in that fully present state. And um, as I've worked with people and now we're coming up on a year for sure in just working with uncertainty mm-hmm. and using this as an opportunity to remember that actually we we guess about the future, but and we have a mind as a human species that can predict, but we always are in a level of uncertainty. Um, and so kind of helping people work with that because we didn't know when COVID would end and we didn't know if we might get it. It was just a scary thing. And then depression, just the effect of isolation, lots of research around that. And so it's pretty hard to escape that effect at a human level. Uh, But we can use this then as an opportunity to um, prevent or work with depressive states that might come from extended lockdown, for example, or not being able to see our friends. Yeah. So I I guess I take, and this was my book, um, the idea of wakefulness through our lives, not despite our circumstances. So always being opportunistic for how can this moment, difficult or not, or this relationship serve my wakeful self? And and what does that actually look like? Again, if if somebody's sitting there and they can't deal with their anxiety and they're trying to escape for whatever reason, watching TV, you know, before maybe it was people going out shopping or eating or whatever. How do you teach people to do that, to really sit with that and just, you know, how can I, you know, learn from this in, in a wakeful state? Do, is, it, is it a long process to do that with someone? Because I know people who are very anxious right now, and I've worked with people who have gone through deep depression and abuse and all those areas. Um, but I'd love to hear how you do it, because you have a way, even the way you speak, I like. Mm, <laughs> you got this, oh, thank you. this flow that's very, very oh. resting and loving, and you, and you can oh. feel where you're coming from. Thank you so much. Well, um, Yes, those states and almost, I would say, within, I've been in the second career now, almost 20 years, so it's been quite a time, normalizing those things. So there's a piece of that that's beautiful, of course, because then it doesn't feel shameful if I'm anxious or depressed or both. But it's also a kind of normalization that is a little bit concerning and frightening to me and that this is kind of accepted as kind of comes with the territory of being a human being Um or being on the planet at this time. And so I'm, I'm a person that always goes to source. Um, so when we think of anxiety as actually more of a body and a mind piece, like caught in an eddy, if you want to use the metaphor of the river, versus actually feeling fear and all emotions in their core state come in waves and they don't actually last very long where something like anxiety which people think of as fear it's actually more of a steady state and it's a lot of mental activity so i guide people into a place which is the second aspect i talk about in the book to really um, getting some emancipation from the mind, really also then working with body practice. So if I'm feeling anxious, there's much I could do in the moment um, and deep breaths are just the beginning point to begin to really quell what is a physiological state, a nervous system state. Um, And then just segueing to depression, often people think of that as sadness. Depression is actually not sadness. Sadness is a beautiful and important emotion, as is anger, as is joy. Um, But again, they move as transient states. Um, And so if I'm depressed, actually, probably some of my emotions are shut down. So I'm thoughtful about people that are deeply depressed because it's very scary to introduce the idea of like, we're going to move towards the pain, not away from it, Mm -hmm. but I'm with you to do that. And actually, if we turn toward that grief or turn toward even some of that anger, 
Um, it may not be as scary um, as it feels like to feel those feelings. And then as that starts to move, often depression will start to lift. Now, sometimes there's hormonal pieces. Um, there can be situational depression. Uh, COVID is kind of a piece like that where just other things are happening. And it isn't just about uh, feeling the feelings along the way. Um, but that's kind of how I would dive into those two pieces and, and start the process with folks. So that is your aspect to freedom from the mind to really face mm -hmm. your fears. Well, the fear that's generated out of the mind. Absolutely. Yes. Um, I realize that, you know, it's, you know, so much, my first aspect is just befriending you. And then uh, it's this idea of self that's much beyond the human idea of the ego self. But pretty quickly, we're contending with a mind just because our thinking so dominates our existence. And if if I'm identified with my thoughts or if I believe beliefs that are untrue, like I am unlovable or I am not good enough, um, that is going to generate so much depression and anxiety that, yeah, it's, it's really, you can't stop thinking, but you can understand that your mind is often, if not more than... Um, often correct is incorrect, it's inaccurate. And so just helping people just have that awakened, uh, wake, wake up call to that. Like, I don't have to believe every thought or story. Like, what does that look like? So that's a huge way to then again, be present in the moment as I'm not lost in kind of the trance of the mind or the future. So you talk about befriending yourself. Let's, let's talk about that a little bit more. And you also talk about intrinsic worth. How does somebody develop that? How do you develop that muscle? You know, the whole thing about Well, yeah, it's a, such a good question because I believe it is, uh, it's either innate or it's not. Uh, so it's actually a reclaiming kind of thing. Nice. But and so often in my practice, Maria, people do not come in with a, with a counseling goal of, I want to, I want to, you know, uh, I want to claim that intrinsic worth or I want to strengthen, as you say, that muscle. They'll come in with the consequence of not having worth and they won't know that that's the driver. They won't know that that's the driver of their shame. They won't know that that's why they can't apologize uh, or they're practicing perfectionism. And so, again, as in terms of befriending you, me, um, that is the um, reclaiming of what is intrinsic and innate, meaning I have nothing to prove. Uh, it doesn't matter that I was suicidal. It doesn't matter if I've injured someone, as we all have. The innate does not move. The worth does not move. As I say to my clients, it's never on the table. So that just felt really important to put in the first aspect. So how I work with people that are like, I want that. That sounds really good, but I'm not there. If they're a parent, I might say to them, well, are your children worthy? Or do they have to kick a soccer ball perfectly? Do they have to go to college? Do they have to have a certain IQ? And immediately, it's like, absolutely not. It's like, well, if you can know that in your body right now, just feel how you know that then if it's true for them, it's true for you. And so we just got to get back there. So when you were an infant, you didn't think, am I good enough to cry or should I not cry? Because I'm, I'm not as good as my brother or sister or, right? We just, so somewhere along the way, worth got fractured or there was confusion. Like for me at 14, my father left. It's like, oh, I'm not good enough. I knew exactly where it happened. A lot of people don't know exactly where it happens, but usually we can unpack it and get some good ideas. Then you think about things like I, I have a memory that I used to share with people when I did conscious core transformation, and that's working with belief work. Um, mm -hmm. And it's, it was in grade two. Again, I was told mm -hmm. not to question my teachers, but yeah. they, yeah. Took, they took 10 kids to the side of the room at the front of the room. And the teacher said to the rest of the room, these 10 children will excel in life and you are average. That's what she said to us. <laughs> and, and I was oh. one of the ones sitting down and I didn't tell my mom, it came to my own awareness. Oh later, my goodness. Mom, you know, work in psychology and everything. And then I used that to share with people that that stuck with me a long time, because when I went to college and university, and I was the first one in the family to go, um, it wasn't easy for me, I had to work really hard. Um, because I had that belief there still that, you know, it wasn't, 
you know, stupid, but, but it was sort of like, I'm not going to excel. You'll struggle all your life. And so it's interesting what we, we, we hold and we don't even know it came up later. Exactly. And I, I might add a piece that I speak to, and I think we all can relate to it, which is confirmation bias. So when I have a belief, the, the wild way the mind works is though that belief gives me great suffering, it is actually looking to reinforce itself unbeknownst to me some of the time or a lot of the time. And even if a bridge further is, I will create evidence. So that kind of, our mind will screen out evidence to the contrary of a belief. Oh, so if it's a belief, I'm unlovable. It will not track where I experience love and could understand myself to be lovable. It is looking for confirmation of the belief that exists. And so it's going, so then I have this idea of like, but I can prove, I like, I, I see this is how I know this belief, even though I hate it, I'm miserable, is true. And so I introduce that in the book, just this idea of confirmation bias. And it's like, what we have to do, it sounds like you're doing this too, of if we can change that inner belief system at the psychological level, then that same process will begin to happen in a very different, lovely spiral upward, which is the goodness in me, my worth, my lovability. Um, Then I see evidence to that. And then that's reinforced. Yes, because a lot of times we, we give our power away to other people. It could be even your children, your mate, your partner, your mom, your dad, your uncle, you know, friends versus like what you said, uh, even at the beginning, you know, about creating and, you know, this moving from your message from, from the world within to the world without working mm-hmm. on that deep inner work and knowing mm-hmm. you're the one, you're the one that has to do the work. You can't have, you know, Suzanne over there going to the gym and you want to lose some weight. <laughs> you have mm-hmm. to, you have to do yeah. the work. Yeah, that's right. Well, and I, I think that inner environment for some of us that come from trauma, um, and our world tends to have us pretty outward facing. Uh, to be to go inside is is really uh, uh, an act of bravery for a while because I am dealing with things I've not dealt with. I have to face feelings of unworthiness or my fallibility, um, places I haven't forgiven myself, um, feelings I have not fully experienced. I've disassociated from, mm-hmm. and so. Uh, that inner work, which is really how we get to outer manifestation, is key. But I think that's why I love being a psychotherapist and not just uh, traveling in spiritual waters is because sometimes that's that's too much to ask without actually some trauma work um, and, and clinical support to do that. Uh, so, yeah, the inner that moves to the outer is absolutely um how I frame it all. Hmm. How, how would you help somebody if I don't know if they come to you for this, but discover their life purpose. A lot of people are like, I don't know what my purpose is. I don't know where to start. I don't, you know, I don't even know if I have one, but for them mm. to have that life purpose so they can have more meaning and fulfillment in their life. And it's bigger than the I, the me, it's something, the bigger vision, I call it. Bigger vision. Yeah. Well, a couple of ideas on that. And this might sound a little um, conflicted, but I I would offer this as kind of an idea of duality. Sometimes two opposite things uh, sit together. Uh, I don't know if you, I have grandchildren now, so I recently watched this uh, movie that's up for, going to be up for some of the awards called Soul. And uh, it's the the, the main theme that related to our conversation is basically what is purpose? Mm-hmm. And we think of it as like, I'll write a book someday or I'll, I got to change the world or like this big ticket item and, and don't want to, don't want to be a spoiler alert, but you know, uh, the movie spoke to something different, which is ultimately the extraordinary is in the ordinary. It is here right now. And we need to be cautious about being so future oriented and goal-oriented that we miss some of the deepest um, experience in life, which for some of us then becomes part of purpose, to be an instrument of love, for example, to be uh, fully present to our life, to um, feel the feelings such that we can then uh, empathize with other suffering, and that might kind of inspire us to do something at whatever level. So there's that. And I work with people from like all walks of life and all times in their life. 
And there is a way that if, if, if we do not have directionality, if we do not have something that feels, you know, literally, what am I getting up for every day? Um, that that has a place and we can call that purpose a, a critical place. There's a, in graduate school, this little experiment that always stayed with me that I learned about where they took an experimental group in a uh, nursing home, elderly folks, and uh, they got a plant. It cost $1.49. And then their control group, they just were tracking that control group for 30 days. And they were tracking depression. They were um, tracking also health status stuff, I believe, blood pressure, just some different things. Guess what? The people that had a $1.49 plant to take care of, their, their health status and their mood and their well-being improved. So every day, they had to keep that plant alive. And so... Because I, it just spoke to me as how critically important, but how small that purpose could be to make such a phenomenal difference. I love that. We have a plant here that's been with us for, <laughs> I would say about 20 years now. It's in our front oh. meditation room. And I talk to my plants and I talk to oh. my willow tree. So I, and yeah. you know, I've always done that, all that shamanism stuff yeah. and animals and the fairy realm and all that stuff, Catherine. But no, the, the, this plant in the front room that I love every day, and that's how I start my day, I go and give it water. And there's little babies coming off of that thing over and over and over again. I looked, I said to Cliff, my soulmate and husband, like that is just a miracle. That that plant is a miracle life. And the day we move, we're going to have to be very careful moving that. That's right. That's and, right. I, I would offer, and I do have one of my aspects because I'm so deeply not just like an environmentalist in the ways that we might understand. And I am those things um, and lean that direction politically. Um, but the connection to nature, again, I am that, then I am not just a human species or a human body. And so my hope was like, I'm hearing in your tone and your words that you feel that aliveness in that plant. That is you, that is what you are resonating with rather than just, Oh, that's a beautiful plant. Oh, I'm observing it. It brings me joy even to have purpose around it. Um, it is form. It is just a different form of source. So um, I love talking nature stuff. And, and that's why a lot of my book, I do nature metaphor. Uh, I didn't know how that was going to go as an author, but it just, I'm so visual. And that felt like a way to differently explain ideas that have been around for eons. Um, so nature's huge in my world. Yes, that was one of my questions. That's your aspect of um, nature as you. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, nature's huge. And I love how you say that again. You know, I am that again, and I am, and just mm-hmm. source takes different form. I know Lynn, I don't know if you know Lynn Mitarget. Um, she did mm-hmm. a book, um, different studies uh, around mm-hmm. healing. And one of her books, though, that I used to present when I talked to audiences was um, Living in the Field, I think it's called. And it's about intention. We're going to touch on that mm-hmm. in a minute. And how um, they did a study where these plants were another building, like, I don't know, four blocks mm. away or something. And mm. they, they held an intention that they were going to hurt this plant, like burn it or put a match to it or mm. something. And then the other ones, they sent love to them. So you know what um. happened. The ones that literally thought they were going to be destroyed or burned, they started shaking, like the leaves started mm. shaking. And over here, wow. the loved ones flourished. So it was showing wow. the connection again between the yes. two of them. And it's pretty, pretty powerful. Well, yes, let's look it's at that. so powerful. Oh. And have you, you do you know the Japanese uh, scientist, I believe he wrote a book called The Shape of Love, and it was the same thing. The water mm. crystals changed when they put words like hatred mm-hmm. and violence and uh, other words versus, you know, literally words in a glass. Um, and they, and then they put them under a microscope and the shape of love and those crystals would be asymmetrical or organized symmetrically based on, on the energy of the word. Yes. Um, that's, that's Dr. Masur. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I have his cards. I have his books. Again, I bring I those to my it. talks too. So we're both on the same page with that. There we go. And you know, of course, how much of water are we? And then what yes. are we saying to ourselves in our That's inner it. talk? 
And this is where we get right back into that human experience that can compromise experiencing ourselves as that beautiful, symmetrical, you know, crystals of water. Yeah. Perfect. And the, his message was also, if we're, you know, as an adult, 80% or something or 85, whatever that percentage is, if that's who we are, just think with words, how powerful we are that we can create a world of love and peace and empathy yeah. and compassion. Like we are the ones that can do this. And yeah. yes, there'll always be the people that aren't doing that. Just as I feel, yes. you know, coming out of the pandemic, there are you know, there's people who have really grown through this and taking the time mm -hmm. to really, mm -hmm. you know, spend time with their family, get uncomfortable, get comfortable. I think we're all itching to get out and do something different. Um, but yeah, that that idea that we we can heal the world. Yeah, and the the impact we have on not just humans, and that's just we probably scratched the surface think about neuro um mere neurons that we have we are so wired mm. to be have a system that's responsive to others and environment but if we take that to animals and plants and what we bring energetically that now is science this is not woo woo stuff which is so exciting mm. uh that this is um can actually be studied and known and, and trusted, I guess I would say in a different way. And, you know, not that this is a podcast necessarily our conversation about racism, but that is one of the things also um, that has been such an important part of this last year. And part of when we understand ourselves as part of a greater whole and this idea of awakened self as in, interconnected to others, it undoes the toxicity of individualism. And I'm all about people having that sense of self that is befriending you and having a life that is a uh, manifestation of our own kind of personal journey. But that there needs to be, <laughs> that has a, a limit and actually a consequence if that's the uh, end game, if that's where the line in the sand is. So I love this conversation because I believe ultimately it is part of undoing racism is we have to be understanding that we are the collective and we are affecting the collective, um, whether we understand that or not. Mm -hmm. um, so to have deep intentionality around that um, is anti-racism work, I believe. Mm -hmm. That's exactly where I was going to segue into about intention and people trusting their intuition so that trust mm -hmm. intuition intention tie that together for me uh well they <laughs> both start with i <laughs> um they have three syllables uh well i i frame them a little bit differently um uh, but let me see if i can bridge it or maybe together we can bridge it what what is so exciting just kind of bouncing off where we just were this the when i started this career, they had not done the neurological research that is now securely in place. So we really thought like therapy, talk therapy was, it might feel good in the moment, but the brain was not a part of the human organism that would change. Well, now we understand that very, very differently with neuroplasticity. Mm -hmm. So the idea of setting intention, just like if I think a awful thought, tomorrow's going to be terrible. I'm not sleeping tonight. I'm sure it's going to be awful. We now know, which is super frightening, that we are laying neural pathways. And once we lay neural pathways, experience follows. So we are truly setting ourselves up. So then to me, the reverse of that would be intention. Um, if I intend and sit with and kind of um, focus in on what that would be, my brain is organizing around that reality. It is not just a cognitive process, like a thinking, pro like I hope it happens or like a, a New Year's Eve resolution. It has more power than that. And, and again, I think that's great. I will say, Moira, that I, I work with people. I, I had a session last night, literally a woman talking to me about my intentions but then I'm not actually manifesting some of those intentions. So then we have to slow down and drop in and get curious. Something's going on there. So sometimes people set intentions, they don't follow through on them and they experience actually a lot of shame with that. So um, it's a complicated, but a mm -hmm. really important um, piece of this conversation. And then for me, intuition is literally the voice that is beyond 
maybe the more known voice in my head. And if we can learn to trust that, that inner guide, which is, I believe, a function of source and delineate that from just my, my self-talk um, and, and, and know, know even in my body what, how that feels different. Um, I think that's also a part of, for me, my spirituality and for some and in one of my chapters, but incredibly um, helpful. Not always convenient, not always fun, not always logical. One of the stories in my book is where I followed my intuition and basically didn't get into the ocean where my husband was. We There did not look to be sneaker waves. We watched the water for probably 10 or 15 minutes. And my grandchildren, I wanted to be that grandma that was like, you know, snorkeling and in because I'm pretty active and they were too young to get in. And it's just, I heard it loud and clear and... I probably, I saved at least injury, if not our lives. He was thrown in. He was in bumping up against a cavern of lava. If I had been in there tumbling around, I just don't know what would have happened. So it's it's kind of life and death sometimes, I think, with intuition. That's interesting. I was just, you're, we're just so well on the same page here, Catherine. I was just going to mention <laughs> that in your book because I read your whole book. And, uh, oh, lovely. You know, and that was at the end there. And um Yes, that you paid attention. You did not go in. And I think you mm-hmm. said that you're a very strong swimmer too. So, mm-hmm. yeah. and I love the part you talked about curiosity. I think curiosity opens up possibilities for us instead of shutting us down. And, you know, you, you said that in your book also about, you know, how we are limitlessness, right? It's mm, that whole exactly. part lives within us. And if we come from this place of being curious and open it literally I can feel it in my body when you you know you're open Mm -hmm. and then you allow Mm -hmm. you know the how to show up we don't get in the way of that because yeah universe you know orchestrates everything once we get Mm -hmm. clear on our intentions and what we want so that's Mm -hmm. that's really beautiful yeah I want to dive into specific elements to having healthy relationships and Mm -hmm. if you could share some important you know, practices during this time for people to have healthy relationships, not just with their partner, but with the children, with the grandparents, with the people they interact with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, that was some of the uh, both kind of not damage control, but some of coming out of the the dark night of the soul of my life. And it took years to understand some of the pieces. Um, and I, I, keep I it is such an important part of the book if you probably read it's not a third of the book but somebody said maybe this just needs to be its own book so I have an aspect of wakefulness conscious relationship and I do a lot of couples work but I do a lot of dyad work so to your point uh two or three people whatever the nature of their relationship um we you know we come from families of origin that's Sometimes it's always our starting place in a way, but it sometimes it's sadly the ending place. We don't know that it could be different. So if we have a healthy um, relationships in those families, then we probably bring a lot to the table. But some of us didn't. You know, some of us were raised with unregulated anger. Uh, some of us were uh, did not see parents taking care of their relationship. Some uh, did not understand the importance of transparency and there were always secrets in the family. And so I really tried in this aspect to break down um, each component part in its own way, what it contributes to a conscious relationship. But I started with an important one. And it's actually part of a gift I'm offering to your listeners, which is um, what I called in the section, the path of peace. One of the aspects of having unworthiness for me was it would drive rage. I didn't understand that. I just thought I was expressing my feelings. But what was really happening was there was very deep anger at what had happened with my father. And then my shame and defensive anger around ever feeling criticized or um, so there was an anger and a fire that lived in me. And um, my demeanor now is, Uh, experience is very different than even how I have known myself for a lot of my life is pretty fiery and pretty reactive. And so to me, if we go back to our early description of an awakened self, if I'm relaxed, if I'm open, like you say, if I'm curious, if I'm interconnected, my temper is going to compromise that. So I, 
I really get into the very concrete process with many of my clients and had to produce this work myself and I have to live it of regulating anger. That's not repressing anger, but it is regulating it. And that is like a what? Like that's a paradigm. That's a life-changing kind of proposition for someone. Um, I'll tell you a quick story. It's it's a celebration of how powerful this work can be. Um, before you and I got onto the recorded part of today, I this week learned that I thought I lost my website URL um, of 20 years. And uh, in the day without doing this work, I would have raged at my website person. I, I would have... Or even if I wouldn't have raged, I would have white knuckled a very, very tense conversation. The really powerful thing about doing deep anger work for those of us that need to do it, and and that's some of the trauma work, is I was kind of scared. I was not happy. I felt somewhat frustrated with him. But when I got on the phone with him yesterday or the day before, I didn't even have anger to regulate. And if you would have asked me 20 years ago if this was possible, I truly would have thought it would be a miracle. Like the best I'm ever going to do is not harm someone with my anger. There, I didn't know there could be a day where it did not exist, not because I was repressing it, because it literally, it just did not show up in my body. And so that's the beginning part. But again, I go through transparency. I have a communication tool. I have a collaboration tool. I think repair in relationship is critical. Other ways we build defenses. Um, you know, we don't trust over time. If, if it's more just like, oh, I'll wait, they'll try not to do it again versus a repair process, for example, where someone does amends and they also do atonement work, which is different than just saying, I'm sorry. This is more like, okay, how do we make this right? So that's what you can hear why that aspect of that chapter is fairly long because there's a lot of components to conscious relationship. Mm -hmm. And then you have all these at the end of each chapter, you have these stories from the field. Mm -hmm. what, what, what's one of your favorite stories? I know you're going to have many, many. It's very hard to say. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> and these are some of my beloved. Oh, two. If I could quickly share two. Yes. One is on, on worth that I think um, I was just so. So when you, you know, author a book, you have readers. And I chose some of my children. I have a lot of children, um, but uh, some friends, a few colleagues. And when I got to that worth section, um, a client of mine who had given permission for me to tell his story, he had a classic case of why, like me, he wouldn't feel worthy. He had a really absent father. And my daughter, Elizabeth, read that part. And she said, Mom, remember when I was 25 and I struggled with feeling good enough? And you don't have me in your book. I did. I didn't have parents that got a divorce. I was always told I was loved. You were always and dad was always present. So that would be really confusing to me as a reader because it's like, well, then why don't what's so she as being a reader. And then if you remember, there's a second story about worth. it's her story. It's about even if you get all the right messages, you never have a big trauma you can understand this still might be a struggle and something to resolve within yourself. So there's the worth one. And uh, there, there's my really brave client that in the uh, aspect of bracing death and dying, uh, and he is still alive. Um, and when I published the book, we didn't think he would see even his published date. He was willing to write his story, uh, his terminal cancer, and he, and he still doesn't probably have much longer. But he wrote in his words uh, what it was to embrace death and dying because some people read that chapter and it's like yeah that sounds really great but what about if it's actually happening and um i won't say his name because i'm protecting confidentiality mm -hmm. but he is facing that and he is experiencing what those words say so that is like a testament to this isn't just great sounding stuff but when the you know what <laughs> hits the fan like oh is this stuff really work is this real um he he's a testament to that so those are the two that are popping in right mm, now. Nice. Now, here again, I was going to go there. So you're, you're there before me. So Aww. really embracing death and dying. So he, that's one of the aspects of wakefulness. How does somebody really do that though? Like I know his stores, you know, it's, he's having his own experience. How does somebody really do that though? They know that they're dying or they've been told they have cancer or they don't have long to live mm -hmm. or whatever that is. How do they embrace that? 
Because that's, like you said, very scary. Like my husband was diagnosed last year with, you know, stage four prostate cancer. And when we came home from the hospital, we were like, I I just cried. I I couldn't imagine my life without him. He's my soulmate. And, you know, and they just sort of say, sorry, you know, and you you go home and and you, you know, you don't imagine that you'll ever experience that. You think maybe somebody else, you know, and you feel empathy. And yeah, when you hear that and, you know, luckily where we live in that, and I think we're living here for that reason. He got into a study and he's a year on the other side now. Oh, yay. He's cancer free, potassium free. And, wow. uh, you know, we get wow. to live this lovely life together, but that really wakes, that's a wake up call. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, and I, I, so, so a couple of things, mm-hmm. uh, even in a clinical training program, which was introduced to me, there's a whole approach that believes that our fear of death drives so much dysfunction. You could actually be a therapist just specializing in that, not grief, not a traditional way of thinking about this, but just helping people face their mortality and you would liberate them to live an awakened life, which I, mm-hmm. so the, the spirit of that chapter is that it is also like Stephen Levine. He wrote a book, uh, one, one year to live. And it wasn't because at that point he had one year to live, but he had clients and patients that when they were terminal, because it woke them up, they had one of the most phenomenal years of his life. So if you read that book, you would pick something like today, February 26, 2021. And I would say Catherine Jansen Burkett is going to die February 26, 2022. What would I do? What would change in my life? Now, the hope would be that's the, the test that I would change nothing, that I am living exactly my intended life. Um, So my hope is in embracing, we are not only not afraid of this thing that is a part of life that our culture does not do a good job of um, in helping us understand, we will die, those we love will die. There will all, there will be a goodbye, not that it will be a closure of the love. That's a myth around closure, but there is an impermanence. And so to really be with that, when I say embracing, it's not like if I got that term diagnosis, I wouldn't be sad, but it is more about, I wouldn't be afraid. I would be deeply sad because I love my life and I love my people so much. So there would, there would be an experience of loss. So I would embrace that. Um, lastly, I would say a a teacher helped me separate these two things, um, which is death and dying as two separate kind of, uh, pieces. So is it death you're afraid of, or is it dying you're afraid of? And I have tended to be, um, highly sensitive to pain, physical pain. So when I broke it down, I'm actually was more afraid of dying death itself, because I understand myself to be part of a larger whole that doesn't die, that, and and even if past lives don't exist, that I'll come back someday, as I was introduced by my mom, that wasn't where I was afraid. Mm -hmm. The body will die, I don't die. But the dying part um, was where, at a human level, I was kind of caught in an eddy. So I try to break that down in a book to help people also kind of connect. But ultimately, if we are not identified at the human level, it changes the whole question. Do we die? Who dies? What dies? Yes. And, and Wayne Dyer talks about that too, pretty mm-hmm. much. But, you know, just accept it. You're going to die. Your physical body is going to die. But, you know, yeah. you, you go back to where you, you originated and you take your focus off your body and leave. And I, I, I work with the other side, the spiritual beings in that. So I can mm-hmm. see them and hear them. And it's been part of my life since I was about five years old. Mm. But um, mm. yeah, that's a nice way to, to put it. Um, because I believe, I, not everyone believes that you continue your life. You don't really die. Mm-hmm. That's scary if you don't have that belief. So yes, exactly. Exactly. Catherine, I, yeah. I would like to invite you to read um, out of your beautiful book, River to Oceans, Living mm-hmm. the Flow of Wakefulness. I love the ti- the title's gorgeous. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm all about Soul Awakening Academy. That's my that must, that's yeah. my company. So this wakefulness, yeah. I'm drawn to meet you. Um, if you could read the part about your proposal around possibility, I would love, it's a powerful message. I think it'd be very nice to come to the closure of our, our help, heartfelt conversation with this quote mm-hmm. from your book. So if you can share that, that would be wonderful. 
I will do that. Thank you. You're welcome. So I propose to you a possibility, one that is life-changing in its potential. You are much more than your human self. You are not just alive. You are aliveness. You are not only present. You are presence. You are not merely aware. You are awareness. Asking the question, who am I, takes you to where it all starts. You imagine traveling upstream to the wellspring of your existence, arriving at the headwaters of the stream, at the source of your being. There a truth awaits, that whatever sourced you is you. It lives and breathes as you. I just shut my eyes when I was listening to you. Again, your voice, but that's just, mm-hmm. no, that's at the beginning of the book. And that's just so, so beautiful. Oh, what a way to you. start your day reading that every day and using that as a mm. mantra. That would be, mm. I think I'm going to start doing that. <laughs> oh, I love it. <laughs> Catherine, um, can you share the gift? Because there's several gifts here you want to share with our audience. And I, I appreciate it because my audiences and my listener, they're important to me <laughs> in my community. And if you can share what that is, and please know, everyone listening, the links to your gift that Catherine is giving you, which is very lovely. And also how you can find Catherine will be below in the show notes. So if you could share yeah. that, Catherine, that would be absolutely so we referenced a few things, and, and so I just, uh, to give a kind of package of some uh, kind of next steps. So uh, there's a piece on working with anger. We spoke of anger. I have developed three tools for conscious relationship. Um, those tools are gifted to your listeners. I offer a piece around just body image, because that's how some are kind of, as I did, working with kind of not being in a loving place with our body and kind of exploring that. So some questions, reflective questions to um, answer. And then uh, just sharing my resources. I have been so gifted by people who have come before me, not just uh, who have passed, but just teachers and therapists. And I just, uh, I just think we are so uh, using those resources and letting them live inside of us is hugely important. So it's a kind of pay it forward to those that have helped me along my journey. So I wanted to share those with your listeners as well. That is wonderful. That's going to be, um, that's going to help a lot of people in the different areas you're talking about and just to start to do the work. It gives gives them a place to start and it's very laid out clearly. So that's wonderful with their, you know, for them to start step into their wakefulness. Catherine, thank you so much. This has been so much fun from, for you sharing from your heart and soul, your mm. wisdom, which is the show, on living in, in the flow of wakefulness. Namaste. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Heart Soul Wisdom Podcast with Moira Sutton. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please join our community at moirasutton.com and continue the discussion on our Facebook page, Create the Life You Love. You will be part of a global movement, connecting with other heart-centered people who are consciously creating the life they love on their own terms. Together, we can raise our consciousness for the greater good of humanity and for our planet.